Have you ever had a truly epic day? Who feels of having for Friday? Who had an epic day on Friday? Anyone loved Friday of this week? Anyone? Helen, school's out. An epic day. Any kids feel as if they had an epic day on Friday as well? Well, the epicness of our Friday was added. There's Elliot with his hand up. We had a mother of all water fights in the back garden of our house to celebrate Elliot's upcoming birthday. Some of you may not be as crazy as a water fight generation, but for all of us, I'm sure we have had days that are epic. For some of us, it might have been our wedding day. Maybe for some of us, it was that first kiss. Uh, Maybe it was the day we started our own business. Uh, I have sat on the stage of the Whitla Hall five times over this week already, and I have witnessed hundreds upon hundreds of young people from all over our island and the world graduating. An epic day for them and their family. For football supporters, every day is an epic day at the moment. For tennis supporters, tomorrow is the start of your epic days. Whenever we read this passage from Luke that Jane read for us, it'd be weird if we maybe have a reference to that as we go through this. This was an epic day beyond comparison that Jesus and his disciples encountered. Last Sunday morning, we had Gillian reenacting the storm on the lake. It was frightening, it was hardcore, it was serious drama. We had waves, we had Jesus, we had disciples. That was the start of this day that Luke recounts to us. The storm miraculously calmed by Jesus, followed by the fury of this wild man in the graves of Gerasa. And then if you kept on reading in Luke 8, you'd find the next part of the day finishes with this reversal of a heartbreaking situation. A little girl who has died and Jesus brings back life into her body. That is one crazy day. That's worthwhile blogging about. Hopefully none of you going to Uganda will have such epic days ahead of you. But what we're focusing on is whenever love comes into play in this area of the Palestine called Gerasa, focusing on the Gerasene town when Jesus arrives. The winds and the waves have incredibly subsided. I'm sure the disciples were saying to themselves, no, can we just maybe go home, Jesus? But no, Jesus keeps them going to their original destination. They're heading to the Gentile territory on the other side of Lake Galilee. And these people that they're going to aren't particularly culturally sensitive. Half of them seem to be pig farmers. It's unclean and it's defiled. And to top it off, there's stories of this wild man who terrorizes the neighborhood. So, Jesus, why are you taking us here? And as they land, I'm sure the disciples are hoping that this wild man of the Gerasenes remains hidden. But no, 
They land and they can't believe it. There he is running towards them, clanking his chains, completely starkers, screaming and threatening them. What do we do now, Jesus? We've escaped one storm only to land ourselves in an even more terrifying and insoluble one. I don't know if you've ever been gripped by fear. Remember one time, and every now and again flashes through my head, we were down at Dublin Zoo, and I lifted Elliot, who was about three or four at that stage, up over the first barrier to have a closer look at the wolf pack. I don't know what they imagined I was dangling in front of them, but they came en masse, running as a pack straight towards the fence, and I thought, that's it, they're coming through, and my son is going to end up as a pork sausage. The panic that gripped me was wild. And I doubted the strength of the fence that had been built at the zoo to save us. Thankfully, that fence was sufficient, and I let laughed his way back into my arms. But for that minute, it was pure terror. A terror that I'm sure the disciples felt at that moment. And there's no doubt about the fear this guy would have generated. Mark, in his gospel, tells us a little bit more about it. We get Peter's eyewitness remembrance of that day. This is what Mark recounts. He says, This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. This is another fine mess you've got us into, Jesus. But this is no random encounter. Jesus has gone there intentionally in order to seek out this man, to deliver him and to demonstrate the power of God. And as this maniac man rampages towards them, he stops short as he sees Jesus. And Luke tells us that Jesus commands the impure spirit to come out of the man even before he opens his mouth or comes anywhere near them. What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torture me. It's a remarkable thing that Luke records. If you remember the story that Gillian recounted in the children's address last Sunday morning, the disciples in that moment asked on the, on the lake, who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? And yet here we see This demon-possessed man declaring immediately exactly who Jesus is, son of the Most High God. We witness Jesus as unafraid of the demons as he was of the fierce storm he calmly commanded. And he tells the demons in this situation, in this man, get out of this man. Jesus had come intentionally for this confrontation to seek and save this lost person. 
to offer this man wholeness out of his brokenness, even beyond the nation and borders of Israel. So Jesus retorts to the pleading of the demon by asking his name. Jesus doesn't enter dialogue with it, but he, del- he reveals the extent of this man's torment. Because many hundreds of men were in a Roman legion, and that reflects the grip of evil that inhabited this poor man. We don't know how or what doors have been opened up to cause the invasion of demonic powers into this man's life. But the effects were not trivial, and nor were they funny. Scripture here reminds us of the dangers of exposing ourselves to the occult, to Ouija boards, to mediums, to psychics. They're all acceptable in the mainstream of our culture, but there's nothing trivial or funny about where they lead to and where they lead those who dabble with them. These ancient people knew the difference between mental illness and the demonic in the same way that the majority of the world's people still do. And it is perhaps because of our rationalistic dismissal of the spirit world that it leaves us blind or unwilling to acknowledge its presence. Mental illness is real and causes many of us to struggle in different seasons of our life. But Jesus is certainly not identifying schizophrenia here. He is clear that this possession is satanic and these demons help to confirm in the way that they plead not to be cast by Jesus into the abyss. Now, what is the abyss? The abyss was an Old Testament word that contrasted the domain where Satan and his fallen angels were combined or confined to in uh, contrast to the heavens and the earth where God was identified as dwelling. And as Jesus permits them to leave this man and enter the herd of pigs, they rush headlong off the cliff and drown in the sea. And a bit of another metaphor of the abyss. And this is exactly where Jesus sends them to. I don't know whenever you read this story in the Bible, how you feel. I think sometimes in this story, we get all sentimental about the pigs. Maybe you watch Babe or some of the different programs and we see cute little pigs like this and we think, what about the pigs? Those poor, innocent pigs. We can often get carried away with sentimentality and sorrow for the pigs. More concerned about them than this poor, demented man. Why? Why did Jesus allow that to happen? Doesn't it seem a bit extreme? Well, I think it provided the undeniable proof that the demons had left this man for good. There's no question where they had gone. And it illustrated what the man had been rescued from. So did Jesus hate pigs? Well, I don't think so. He was their creator. He declared them to be good as he made them. He is the one who even sees a sparrow fall to earth and cares about it. I don't think he would have taken any pleasure in the demonic slaughter of this herd of pigs. But crucially, he evaluated the worth of this man's life and his restoration to be much greater than the value of these animals. This is, however, not how the townspeople 
view the incident. If you read on in the passage, you see they are raging. It's an economic disaster and outweighs any consideration concerning this man. And we see in verse 34 and 35 that the pig herders run off and raise the alarm and the locals respond by rushing to the scene. And what do they see? They see the man whom the demons had gone from sitting at Jesus' feet in the place where a teacher's disciples would have been sitting. The man has gone from maniac to disciple. He is fully clothed one of the disciples, or maybe even Jesus has given him his coat and he is in his right mind. And they look over the cliff and they see the carcasses of the pigs floating underneath. And they're afraid. Maybe they're afraid that Jesus is going to wreck their livestock businesses. Or maybe it's because they are confronted with a power that is even harder to contend with than that of the wild demon-possessed man. Whatever the reason for their fear, when love comes to their town that day, it's too much for them. And they ask Jesus to leave. And I hope the tragedy of that does not pass your attention. And Jesus doesn't force the issue. He doesn't rebuke them or carry on regardless. Rather, he gathers his disciples and gets back into the boat but not before he gives instructions to this new disciple, the restored man, who is so eager to go with him and follow him. And this is incredible because Jesus commissions this man as his very first missionary to the Gentiles. Even before he sends out the other disciples, here is his first missionary. He tells him, return home and tell how much God has done for you. There's no theological training, no manuals, no inspirational podcasts, just his story. Love came to my town. I was broken, but now I am whole. I've been restored. And there's a really interesting update on that story if you read in Matthew 14. Because as Matthew recounts the story of Jesus' travels. Amazingly, you see him returning to the neighborhood of Gerasene. And whenever Jesus returns there in Matthew 14, he gets an incredibly different reception. This wild, restored man has prepared the way for the return of the restoration man himself. And as Jesus arrives in Matthew 14. We see that many cried to see him and many are healed. That's an amazing testimony of the impact of this restored man's life. So what do we take from the story? What are the lessons we carry away from what we read in scripture this morning? Well, number one, we get the answer to the disciples' question. Who is this man? get the answer from a most unexpected source in the form of this tormented man and the demons that have taken up residence in him. You see, Jesus declared a son of the most high God himself. Jesus reveals his power. 
not just over nature, but also over the most impossible human affliction. And secondly, we observe that the reality of the demonic world and the devastation that it causes on humanity is very clear to see. I think sometimes it's really easy to be skeptical here, but it's at our peril. Paul reminds us every day to put on the whole armor of God. In Ephesians 6, I'm sure a lot of you have read it. It's worthwhile going back and looking at that again. And we put that armor on not to stand against tricky atheists in the office, but rather it's because we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies but against evil rulers and authorities in the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. (coughs) Jane and I have friends who work in Bible translation, worked in places like Burkina Faso, and have witnessed their dramatic angelic interventions against tangible evil forces. If any of you have ever heard of a book called The Cross and the Switchblade, Nicky Cruz, one of the heroes of that book, he writes another book, Fear No Evil, and he tells his story of release, the release of his parents from demonic control in Puerto Rico. The Bible, however, does not obsess or overplay the power of Satan. Yet scripture does speak of his created existence, his agenda to steal, to kill and destroy. Yet with all that, we observe here Jesus dealing with authority over this evil power. No rituals, no beatings, no incantations, simply the power of his name. His name spoken, sufficient, for these spirits to be driven from this place. Jesus simply tells them to get out. Jesus never attributes sin or sickness to the people he ministers to as being because of the power of demons. He identifies those who have been afflicted and speaks with his authority, the authority of the most high God, and the demons have to leave. There's power in the name of of Jesus. He that is in you is greater than he that is in this world. So you have nothing to fear here, for you are a temple of God. He has taken up residence within you and will never leave you nor forsake you. Thirdly, as love came to town that day, the wild man's life was totally restored. Dr. Luke was a medical man. I sat yesterday as the doctors and dentists all graduated at Queen's. It was amazing hearing stories of people getting honorary degrees. Uh, A man who had uh, invented the treatments for the treatment of leukemia, restoring people to health who previously would have had a very bleak prognosis. Amazing stories. Luke here is a medical man too. And what happened to this man isn't just a remarkable healing. It is salvation. The salvation 
which God promised long ago, which has appeared in Jesus. Who is your most impossible person? Who do you consider too messed up, too hardened, too unreachable? Who's the most skeptical or insulting person in your family or in your workplace? Consider the man that Jesus met on that epic day. Is that person you're thinking about running naked, breaking chains, living in tombs, screaming, cutting themselves? Probably not. Do they rush at you and violently threaten you? Again, probably not. Are they any more impossible than the wild man of Gerasa? This is what the prophet Jeremiah says. Living in the worst times, he says, Of the Lord, I am the Lord, the God of all mankind. Is anything too hard for me? So whoever your impossible case is, keep inviting Jesus into their lives. Keep praying with your armor fully fitted. The restoration man, Jesus, is in the business of working miracles in the lives of such people. And if you are such a person today yourself, as many of us have been, grasp that new life that is an offer to you today. Broken people, we can be made whole when Jesus' love comes into our lives. And fourthly then, and finally, if you want to tell people what God has done, tell them what Jesus has done in your life. That's what this man did. The first missionary commissioned by Jesus. He woke up mad and possessed. He went to bed that night perfect in peace. Calling and purpose was in his life. Many clearly observed his restored life and responded to his story by seeking Jesus for themselves. Jesus is the son of the most high God. He has authority even over the most evil of influences and has won the victory on the cross over death, evil and condemnation for those who believe in his name. He is the true restoration man. Get off the screen, George Clark. We have a story that is worth hearing. Love came to my town. Love comes to all of us. We're no longer slaves to the sin that once ruled in our lives. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is within us who call him Lord of our lives. This power to transform works within us, but also works out from us into the world that we inhabit. And let us just reflect on that. Maybe in the lives that we're living, so much seems tricky, seems difficult, seems hard to put together. Let Jesus restore you today.